Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. New York City, the city I live in, is a place where America's vast wealth gaps are visible to the naked eye. Folks living in extreme poverty panhandle on the streets and camp out on the subway at the feet of some of the most expensive real estate and richest people in the world. And many of us get kind of numb to that inhumane reality. We tend to look past the person crumpled on the sidewalk, walking by them to get to our next appointment with our gaze averted. Keep moving, don't stop. But the other day on my way back from the gym, I passed by a man who kind of stopped me in my tracks. Not right away. At first glance, he looked like one of those sockless office bros. But there was a cardboard sign hung around his neck that read, homeless, not worthless. His clothes were arranged to make him look dapper, and he was standing super upright like an athlete, holding a paper cup out for change. I know that 10 bucks from the bottom of my purse doesn't solve anything in the long term. I know that poverty is a systems problem and not an individual problem. I know that being poor is not the result of a moral or personal failing. But is that it? We pull the crumpled note out of our purse, shrug and say to ourselves, it's a systems problem, and then keep walking? We keep walking and we stop thinking about how much homelessness, extreme poverty, does equal worthlessness in this country. What do we even mean by a systems problem? Is that just a shorthand for inevitable and unsolvable, and frankly, not my problem? And what would it mean to have true equality of opportunity? To answer these questions, we're revisiting a conversation from last spring with Mark Rank, an expert on poverty, inequality, and justice, and co-author of Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed your book. You spend a lot of time debunking myths around poverty. But before we get there, I thought we'd start with why poverty actually exists. I especially liked the musical chairs analogy you used. Can you explain that? Sure. So the idea is that what we're doing in this country is basically playing a large-scale version of musical chairs. And the question is whether we want to focus on who loses out at the game or why the game produces losers in the first place. So picture a game of musical chairs where we have 10 people but only 8 chairs available. Now, we can focus on who's going to lose out at the game. Who are the two people that are going to lose out at that game? Well, they're going to be not in as good a position when the music stops, not as quick, these kinds of things. And that helps to explain why those two individuals lost out. But if we focus on the game itself, then it's clear that those individual characteristics don't really matter given the fact that two people are going to lose out at that game. And so what I argue in terms of poverty 
is that we're playing this large-scale version of musical chairs. And that there really are only good opportunities for maybe 8 of 10 people playing this game. And so the people who are going to lose out and are going to experience poverty are more likely to have characteristics that put them at a disadvantage in the game. So they don't have as much education, or they might be a single-parent family, or a person of color, say, in an inner-city area. We can point to these characteristics as why they lost out in the game. But if we step back and say, let's look at the structure of the game itself, then we look at things like there aren't enough decent paying jobs for everybody in society. There isn't a safety net that is robust and supports people. These then become the ultimate factors for why poverty exists. The other thing that is unique about this kind of setup, this game, you know, if you want to change the game, not only is it that we are not providing enough jobs, but also the game is punitive. So the system in the United States makes poverty punitive as a matter of public policy, which is a political decision, as you mentioned. The U.S. provides very little support for the poor. How does the safety net, social support for the poor, work in the United States? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So as you point out, the United States has uh, a much weaker social safety net than, say, other high economy countries in Europe and Canada and other places going back to this question of why does poverty exist, one of the big sort of explanations in the United States is the explanation of individual blame, that there's something wrong with the person. They're not working hard enough, or they've made bad decisions in their life, and so on. And therefore, the attitude is, well, we shouldn't reward that. You know, certainly the conservative argument is that a strong social safety net rewards these kinds of behaviors. And that has really underlied a lot of our approach towards dealing with poverty in this country. It really is this question of the deserving and the undeserving poor. And in the United States, we view many of those who are in poverty as undeserving of any kind of assistance. So the result of that is that we we have a much weaker social safety net, and uh, we wind up having much higher rates of poverty. So if you look at, at a number of other countries, what you see is before you take into account social welfare programs, the rates of poverty are somewhat similar to what the United States is. But once you account for those social programs, they're able to reduce poverty by 75-80%, whereas in the United States, we're only able to reduce poverty by 25 or 30%. The one program that we do have that is quite effective in reducing poverty is Social Security. And that has a huge effect on reducing poverty for the elderly. So it's estimated that if we had no Social Security in the United States, the poverty rate for the elderly would go from about 10% right now to about 40%. And that illustrates how a social safety net and social programs can really have an effect on reducing poverty. I think the key question here is about when we go back to the analogy of the musical chairs is that one of the chairs needs to be support for the poor and another part it needs to be providing more jobs. As you said just now, the 
poverty myth is that people are poor because of a moral failure or they're not working hard enough or they're not educated enough. But actually, the reality is that 40% of all American jobs right now are low-wage jobs paying less than $16 an hour. So in fact, many more people are poor than we think. And so really, it's a systems problem as opposed to an individual problem. Some of the work that I've done on looking at the life course risk of poverty really illustrates that. The numbers come out in terms of poverty uh, each year. You know, between 10 and to 15% of the population experience poverty. But if we look across the life course and we say how many people at some point will experience poverty, then the numbers are, you know, depending on how you define poverty, between 60 and 75% of the American population at some point will experience a year in poverty. What that implies is that poverty is really systemic, that as you said, it's the result of not enough decent job opportunities. It's the result of political failings in terms of social programs. So when we look over the long term, we really see the systemic nature of poverty. Right. So now we are interviewing you the day after Joe Biden announced that one of his priorities is to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And I think this goes back now to the people who are deserving or not deserving. You know, people say, oh, but if you have jobs at $15 an hour, that's just too much. And those jobs will be replaced by robots or outsourced overseas. Like the person who's cleaning the toilets does not deserve $15 an hour. And I think this now feeds into the prevalent myth about who is poor. So what is the myth about who's poor? Well, you're raising a really good issue. And what I would say is that it's really un-American for somebody to be working full-time and still be in poverty. If we get the minimum wage up to about $15 an hour, then we can say that if you're working full-time, you should be able to support a family of two or three just above the poverty line. And to me, that's really consistent with the emphasis we place in America on the value of hard work. You know, I've talked to many people in poverty or, or near poverty, and some of the hardest working people are, are working at those kinds of jobs that don't pay very much. Some of the most backbreaking labor is found in those kinds of jobs. It's only consistent with our beliefs if we say, if you work hard full-time, you shouldn't have to be in poverty. That just seems wrong. So that's certainly one of the myths of poverty, that you know people who are poor are not working hard or are lazy or whatever. That just, that just really isn't the case. There are so many myths, other myths besides that, um, that we could talk about. I'll just mention a couple. One is what I had, was saying earlier, that a lot of people view poverty as something that happens to somebody else, that it's, it's too bad, but it's not going to happen to me. Well, as I said, between 60 and 75% of the adult population at some point will experience poverty. So rather than thinking about poverty as an issue of them, we really should think about poverty as an issue of us, that it really affects most of us directly. Um, 
another myth that's sort of related to that is that, well, you know, it's too bad, but the overall cost of poverty is is borne by those who experience it. Well, that's certainly the case, but I, I did a, a study a couple years ago with a graduate student here, and we tried to estimate what's the overall economic cost of childhood poverty to the United States. And what we did is we factored in the idea that if you're a child and you're going up poor, you're more likely to have health problems, and that's a cost on the healthcare system. You're less likely to be an economically productive worker when you get older. Criminal justice costs are higher. We factored in three or four things, and we tried to be pretty conservative. What we found was that the overall economic cost of childhood poverty on an annual basis was around $1 trillion. That's every year. Be- because of the high poverty in the United States, we pay a tremendous price. And-, and basically what we're doing is we're spending our money on the back end of the problem rather than the front end of the problem. So we also estimated that for every dollar we would spend reducing childhood poverty, we would save somewhere between 7 and $12 down the road in those other costs. So not only is addressing poverty the right thing to do from a social justice perspective, but it's also the smart thing to do from an economic perspective. Yeah, when I read those numbers, I was really gobsmacked. You know, you mentioned $1 trillion, which is about... 28% of the entire federal budget in 2015, uh, according to the numbers that you cited. But at the same time, you also cite that it would only cost $86.9 billion a year to basically lift every poor child under 18 above poverty. That's like, I mean, it doesn't even compute. It's like a drop in the bucket. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the question is, well, that seems so obvious. Why don't we do that? There are a number of reasons that we could could think about, but one of them goes back to this question of blame and deservingness and the fact that so many people view poverty as an individual failure. And therefore, you know, you need to get your own house in order and you shouldn't have to turn to the government. First of all, empirically, it's wrong. But again, from a pragmatic point of view, it's not a smart policy because we spend, you know, again, close to or or, or a little bit over at least a trillion dollars a year on the fallout from having so many children in poverty in the United States. Well, I think it's apt that you spend a lot of time talking about these poverty myths, because I think it's precisely this, you know, fervent belief in them across the board, you know, uh, across the spectrum in the United States, in these myths that prevent us from seeing the problem clearly and prevent us from seeing that it's a systems problem to the point of the musical chairs. And therefore, we don't have the political will to tackle this from a systems perspective. I thought (laughs) this was very sad. You paraphrased Marx that the American dream may be the opiate of the American people. A few years ago, I had a book um, that came out on the American dream. And one of its elements is the idea of hope and optimism, that, you know, even though things are tough now, they will get better in the future. 
what that does is it says we don't really need to address the problems now because eventually they will work out. And, you know, that belief has really, I think, gotten in the way of us dealing with some of these issues. The other thing that I would say, uh, in, in spite of all the sort of research and empirical evidence that counter these myths, why do they continue? Certainly one of the reasons is that if we believe that those in poverty are responsible, then, you know, I really have no social responsibility for addressing that. But the other thing that I think is is important is that politicians over the years have used these myths for political traction. So the issue of welfare and, you know, welfare freeloaders and, and welfare cheats and all of this kind of thing has been used repeatedly, particularly by conservative politicians. And it's also been used as a code word for race, for black. And uh, you see that over and over again. So people use these myths to sort of gain traction in the populace. And people say, yeah, we need to get tough on welfare recipients. And everybody is for that. It's almost ironic that it's actually politics that can solve it. And yet it's politics that, you know, perpetuates the myth. Yeah. You know, the answers to to solving problems, it it isn't rocket science. We actually know a lot about what can um, be effective in reducing poverty. And it's things we've been talking about, you know, decent paying jobs, having social supports, having access to key resources like child care and health care. But the problem has, has been not that we don't know the way to address poverty, but the political will to address poverty. That has been, I think, the key problem, particularly in the United States. Yes, I know that in many ways, if we talk about the logic of things, really just does not persuade people. They believe what they believe, and then they're just going to have selective <laughs> memory or, or, you know, pick and choose the things that agree with their worldview and then trot those things out. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that I had not considered the idea of the zero-sum game of improving education in the absence of increasing the number of good jobs. So in fact, a lot of people who are in low-paying jobs are more educated than they ever were, and yet they continue yes. to be poor. Can you talk about yes. that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. So another analogy would be, think about people lined up in a queue, and at the end of the queue are the good jobs. But there are only so many good jobs compared to the people in the queue. So if we increase an individual's education, we can move them up in their position in the queue so that they're more likely to get that job. But there's still the same number of people at the back end. And so, you know, over and over we hear that if we could only just increase people's education and skills. And there are other reasons why I think that that's important. But if that's all we do, we're just shuffling people around. We're not increasing the number of opportunities. We just have people who are more educated that maybe are working at these jobs, but we still have the same number of people that are being left behind. And in that sense, it's really a zero-sum kind of game that we're playing. And again, that's why to go back to the musical chairs analogy, it's so important to keep that in mind because most of our focus on poverty has been looking at the individual and the individual attributes and not thinking about the structure of the game itself. Certainly, education 
education is uh, is an important thing, and it's important in terms of increasing people's human potential and their quality of life and all those kinds of things. But if that's all we do, again, we're just moving people up and down in the queue, but we're not changing the number of people who are going to have a decent job, decent opportunity. Right. In a way, it actually intensifies the competition for the same jobs, right? There are more people now qualified to do that job. You know, I read recently that essentially trying to get a job at Walmart is almost as competitive as trying to get into Harvard. There are like a thousand applicants for one job. I mean, it's just perverse. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what happens. As the number of opportunities decline, employers can be looking for higher and higher qualifications, and that's exactly what you see. So, you know, I think this issue of how do we increase the number of opportunities? How do we increase the number of decent-paying jobs? That is the key question as we look into the future. You know, and I don't pretend to have an answer to that, but that to me is the key question that, you know, as as we think about there may be more artificial intelligence and automation and things like that how are we going to provide enough opportunities for everybody that needs them that's the key question in terms of also addressing poverty well you mentioned that when you have an expanding economy there are more jobs and so therefore there's less unemployment and even people who are in low-paying jobs can get a job and sometimes as the employment market gets tighter they can get even higher paying jobs what would be maybe one idea that you've seen work in the past or in other countries that could in fact expand the economy especially in terms of expanding work for low-wage workers So a couple things here. One, you know, bringing this up that the economy, as the economy does better or as the economy does worse, poverty rates go up or down. That, again, is a structural condition, you know. So the condition of the economy affects the number of opportunities. So that reinforces the argument that I'm making. Now, in terms of what can we do? I think there are, are some, some interesting ideas out there. So, for example, the idea of the Green New Deal, that maybe we should be looking to create jobs that also will address some of these environmental problems, that that could be a, a place of increasing opportunities. You know, one idea that certainly was pretty effective in the 1930s was the idea of government creating some jobs to do some productive work. There were a lot of things that were done in the 1930s that were actually quite productive. The CCC, the Conservation Corps, um, could we think about ways in which the government might actually be putting people to work in a very productive way in which we can address some of these issues? So I think there's some creative ideas out there. But again, I think this is a very difficult issue, but it's a very, very key issue in terms of addressing these problems. But if we consider, let's say, even if we cannot expand the economy, would actually changing public policy have an immediate effect in terms of at least reducing poverty through social safety nets? Absolutely. All we have to do is look at a variety of other countries in which they have a robust social safety net that winds up supporting people through universal health care, through child care assistance, through a lot of things. And that prevents them, you know, that's the idea of the safety net. It prevents people from falling and hitting the ground. If we were to think about, you know, having more robust programs, both in terms of providing direct 
direct assistance in terms of cash and in-kind kinds of programs, but also in terms of some of these important resources like healthcare and childcare, we could definitely reduce the number of people who are in poverty. Again, if you look across countries, you're struck by the fact that the United States has the highest rates of poverty among virtually all of the OECD or the high economy countries in the world. We are at the high point. The question is why? Well, an obvious answer is that we do so little to address poverty, and these other countries do much more. So that in and of itself could have a huge effect on reducing the number of people in poverty. And again, to go back to my point, this is not only the uh, right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do. Because when people fall into poverty, it creates a lot of social problems. It creates a lot of drag on the economic system and on the social systems. So it's much better to address these problems on the front end rather than on the back end. Yes, I think that will, however, require a lot of buy-in and debunking these poverty myths once and for all, which is really difficult. And you spend a whole chapter talking about that. So, well... If you could speak to the American people directly, what would you say to them to, you know, really get people to understand that this is a systems problem? Well, I mean, that was one of the ideas behind the book. You know, really looking at this from a research perspective, rather than necessarily from a political perspective, and really saying, let's sit down and let's address these myths and see if they hold up. And they, and they really don't. None of them hold up. And so I think I would say, you know, let's talk about what the reality is here. But let's also talk about what America should stand for. I mean, if we think about this country, does this make us proud that we have the highest rates of child poverty in the industrialized world? Is that something we should should aspire to? I don't think so. So if we think about uh, trying to make America a good and great country, I think a, a very logical place to start is by reducing the extent of poverty. So for example, when we think about Black Lives Matter and we think about unrest occurring, I think poverty and low income underlies a lot of those problems. So to make our country a better country, I think a really good place to start is by addressing this issue of poverty, which also will begin to address the issue which we haven't talked about at all, but which is really important, the issue of widening inequality in the United States. This will begin to get at that. So I guess that's that's what I would say, is that if we think about what we should be doing in this country in the future, I think addressing poverty is really, really key. Yes, totally agreed. I know we haven't really spoken about inequality. I'm not quite sure we have enough time for all of it, but it <laughs> relates directly to this, of course. But so as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to demand public policy to reduce poverty? Well, that's a question that I've, I've been thinking about for years. When people you know, read this book and they get to the end, they're going to ask the question, well, okay, but what is it that I can do? 
And I mean, it might might sound cliche, but you know, I think democracy really begins with conversations and and talking with people. And so, talking to your friends, talking to your neighbors, talking to your family about these issues, and then thinking about various ways of of trying to change the mindset. So, the idea of of organizing the Black Lives Matter is a, is a great example of organizing, really having a significant effect on the United States in terms of thinking about the issues of race and ethnicity. Could we think about a, a, a movement or a, a, a way of having the same thing happen with poverty and inequality? About 10 years ago, there was the the Occupy movement, you know, with the 1% and the 99%, that did raise some really important issues. And I will say that I, I think, especially in the progressive wing of the political system, there is certainly much more discussion today about inequality and poverty than there was 10 years ago. And so I think we're beginning to actually move more towards this direction, which is quite hopeful. I'm actually quite optimistic that I think we will be seeing some some important changes in the future. But in terms of individuals, I think it always starts with, you know, discussions and, and conversations and then moving from there to actions. You know, certainly voting is one thing, but there are many others as well. Perfect. Well, let's talk about inequality just briefly. One of the things that you cited is that actually the extent of income and wealth inequality today surpasses the extreme inequality during the Gilded Age and I just didn't realize that. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. You know, we think about the Gilded Age and we laugh about it in a sense. We think, how did people become so misguided? And here we are, we're doing the same thing. It's morally unjust and it is divisive and corrosive to our society. But I think a lot of it goes back to this myth, right? That it's somebody else's fault. It's your own fault to be poor. And it continues to feed this idea that, you know, the people who are at the bottom, they deserve that pay. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, going back to thinking about what what the United States stands for, one of the key values that America has always supported is this notion of equality of opportunity. We've never believed in the idea of equality of outcome, but always in the idea of the equality of opportunity. And what that means is that regardless of where you start life, you should have certain opportunities available to you so that you can get ahead and have a good life. Well, it turns out that we don't have a quality of opportunity. And I think the easiest way to see that is go to any metropolitan area and look at the difference in school quality that children are getting. You know, if you go out to a suburban area, you're, you're likely to see schools with lots of resources and, and great curriculums. If you go into a poor inner city area, you see quite the opposite. Well, these children are not having a quality of opportunity. And what happens then is that that accumulates over time. And so that really runs counter to the idea of what America should stand for in terms of equality of opportunity. So you're right. What happened was we had extreme inequality in the Gilded Age. And then the Great Depression happened and World War II. And in the 1950s, inequality had actually reduced to a significant 
um, extent. But since the 1950s and 1960s, inequality has been rising really, really significantly. So again, not only is the United States at the high end in terms of poverty, we're also at the high end in terms of the amount of inequality. Income inequality is really skewed, but even more skewed is wealth inequality. And so we find in this country that, you know, 1% of the population currently hold about um, 60% of the entire financial wealth in the United States. It's an extremely skewed picture. And um, and I think that that has some real dire consequences for, for the country and that we really need to start addressing that. And hopefully, as you've talked about with the Biden administration, hopefully um, we will begin to start addressing some of those inequalities. Yes, agreed. I hope we do. So I have a personal question. How did you get into this field of work? How did you come to this? Oh, I, you know, it's interesting. I'm actually, uh, the next book that I'm working on is all about the role of chance and randomness and luck in our lives. I found that, you know, talking to people, this is a, a really important factor that we often don't even think about, but there's a lot of chance and randomness. And, and I think that that's true in this case with, you know, my interest in poverty and inequality. I, I, I'd always been interested in the issue of social justice and fairness. You know, as a graduate student, I sort of got involved in a research project and it sort of led me down a particular road and I became more interested in that. There's certainly some serendipity and, and some, some chance involved. But then as I started looking into this, I realized that the issue of poverty really underlies so many important issues in the United States. And I just felt that, you know, if we could get a handle on this and inequality as well, we could really be a much better, a much more humane country and, and a much more economically productive country. So that's that's kind of where I'm I'm at. And maybe down the road, we can talk about my chance and randomness book, which I, I think is, is actually going to be really, really interesting. Sounds exciting. Since you're talking about chance and randomness, what have you discovered over time, you know, in studying poverty and inequality that, let's say, continues to surprise you? I guess, you know, it's the idea that poverty is something that that can happen really to anyone. You know, it's sort of there, but for the grace of God go I. You know, there's so many things that people just don't really anticipate, like becoming sick with an illness that can lead to catastrophe or a family splitting up or losing a job that you never thought you were going to lose but you know things happen and the organization shuts down or whatever there's all of these kinds of things that can happen to any of us and i guess that that's probably the most surprising thing that i've just seen over and over both in terms of talking with lots of people and in terms of sort of empirical work as well well, here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? You know, as we talked about, we have a, a new administration, and I think there's been a growing concern, perhaps over the last 10 or 15 years, in the, the Democratic Party, and particularly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, that the direction of this country in terms of inequality, in terms of poverty, is not the way we want to go. I do think that we are going to start addressing some of these issues. 
I think we will learn from other countries in terms of ways that we can be effective in addressing these issues. And so I'm actually, I'm actually hopeful. Um, think about, for example, the environmental movement. You know, 40 years ago, who would have thought that we would have, you know, legislation and we would be so concerned about the environment? And the reason why we are concerned is we realized that the environment affects us all. And that's the way we need to think about poverty and inequality, that that affects us all. And therefore, we really need to be proactive in addressing it. Yes, agreed. I hope you're right that we will do this. And I'm optimistic as well that at least we will have a receptive person in the White House to think about these (laughs) issues and hopefully actually do something about it. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and congratulations on your book. Oh, thanks so much. It was a pleasure being on your show. Next week on Future Hindsight, we'll be speaking with Anat Schenker Osorio. She hosts a podcast about progressive wins called Words to Win By. She's really a wizard of communicating about politics and she'll help us understand how using powers of perception, persuasion, messaging, and strategy can drive positive change. And it's all about showing, not telling, saying what you're for, not what you're against. It's a good one. This episode was produced by Sarah Burningham and Zach Travis. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.